Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the word of our Lord. You know, this passage is, I want to suggest to you, very economical, almost very uh, tidy. There are, there are uh, things that we hold in our hands that are uh, like this from kind of an engineering or design perspective. Simple items, they just work very well uh, like a, a tape dispenser or a stapler or a, a pen or a pencil. They're just simple items, not complex, and yet they work so well. And there's a sense in which these two verses are a lot like that. They're very economic. They're almost elegant in their simplicity. They work. They communicate. And there's something else about these two verses, uh, and that's not in terms of how they look and feel or, or how uh, we uh, read these words, their, their grammar, their design, their structure. These words in uh, Paul's hands by the Holy Spirit function in many ways as a billboard for the entire letter. It's almost as if uh, these two verses are like an ID badge that gives you access to an enormous building and all of the rooms therein. These two verses are powerful. In fact, the things that Paul alludes to in these two verses, what is the gospel? What can the gospel do in general and what can the gospel do for me? Uh, the uh, personal assessment that the gospel makes of me. He says, I'm not ashamed. Uh, uh, what this verse says about God's righteousness and about my righteousness and uh, the role that faith plays in my life, all of these themes, well, they're so enormous, aren't they? This is a billboard. And Paul's going to talk about these things later in Romans. But here we have just an elegant little key that unlocks so much more of Romans later. Well, I want to suggest also that, this, that these two verses, as I'm preaching this morning, serve as a billboard for my sermon. I want you to notice in these two verses how you see the word for show up at the beginning of verse 16, in the middle of verse 16, at the beginning of verse 17. And that word in the Greek is gar. It shows up these three times. And this actually serves as the outline for the sermon this morning. For I am not ashamed. That's how verse 16 opens. For it is the power of God in the middle of 16. And for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. Verse 17. There's the three main points of my sermon. But I want us to begin by asking this question. Where exactly does our human confidence come from? Where do we find so much strength in daily life? Life is very complex. You don't know what's going to happen to you as you awake tomorrow morning. But you're going to have to make it through Monday and Tuesday. Where does our human confidence come from? 
I'm reminded of a a short book about the history of aviation by Gordon Taylor, written in the 70s about the founding uh, of the uh, Australian National Airways. And uh, he is flying a large aircraft and it's full of passengers. This is uh, the very beginning of the era of passenger travel by airplane. And he's flying an extraordinarily big airplane and he's trying to describe in this wonderful book, The Sky Beyond, what it's like to fly such a large aircraft. And he says, uh, I'm not really flying. He says, this great monster was flying me. He says, I was just going with it, virtually a spectator apart from the fact that I had nothing really to do. Without knowing it, I had made the first step towards understanding a big airplane. You don't fly them, you go with them, giving them a guiding hand, reacting to their demands and wishes and acting in their interests. And uh, that picture, of course, I'm not a pilot at all, but that picture is a uh, close proximity to uh, what God does to us and through us in all of our life through his power in the gospel. God is that great monster, as it were, that flies us as Christians, that saves us for all eternity and guides us in each and every day of our present life. Where does our human confidence come from? Paul is going to tell us that it comes from God's power in God's gospel. And he begins in verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. I would Uh, suggests that many of us, when we read this phrase, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, we read it uh, not for I am not ashamed of the gospel. We read simply for I am not ashamed, period. We stop right there. For I am not ashamed. Do you know how the world uh, answers that kind of quandary? uh, To live a life, but to live a life without any shame? You know, our world will tell us that the way to live a life without any shame is to know who you are, believe who you are, be who you are. Don't be limited by anything, your ethnicity or your background or your family. No, no limits at all. Be not ashamed. Don't be limited by your occupation or your bank account or by your friends. Don't be limited by your gender or your sexuality. The world would tell us that the way that we are not ashamed is to be happy in our own skin, to know who we are, to be comfortable who we are, to not judge who we are. That's what the world would tell us it takes to not be ashamed. Well, the statement is not, for I am not ashamed. The statement is, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. You see this, uh, this, uh, A statement of Paul's really is a statement about power, just like when we think what it takes to not be ashamed is to have uh, human power, uh, to have strength, uh, to have resiliency and confidence. Well, those are statements about power. We think, the world thinks, to live a life and not be ashamed is to live a life and have great power and confidence in yourself. But Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel This statement is about power, but it's not about Paul's power that he wells up deep in his heart. This statement is about another power. It's about the power of the gospel. We should uh, pause here. I do want to talk a little bit more about power later in the sermon, but we should pause here to ask the question, what exactly does Paul mean by the word gospel? 
If you look at the very beginning of chapter one, you'll see there that Paul tells us four things about the gospel. He is not uh, leaving the word gospel to be defined by us according to how we feel. He has told us in the beginning of the, of the letter. He says in uh, verse one of chapter one, that he is a servant of Christ Jesus set apart for the gospel of God. What does that mean, gospel of God? Uh, Paul says right there in verse 1 that the gospel is God's possession. The gospel belongs to God. It is his plan. It is his story. It is his gospel. And then in verse 2, he says the second thing about what this gospel is. Uh, Paul says in verse 2 that uh, God shares this gospel with the world. God makes the gospel known to the world through his prophets. In verse 16 of our verse, Paul says that uh, the gospel is for the Jew first and then the Gentile. I think that verse 16 and Romans 1 verse 2 uh, belong together because in 1 verse 2, he is saying that uh, the gospel is God's message presented to the world. It is God's possession, but it is God's message made known through the prophets, but being made known in the life of the church. And then Romans 1 verse 3, he says the third thing about the gospel. He says that the gospel is about God's son, Jesus, this concerning God's son. The gospel is all about Jesus. And that's the third thing he said about the gospel. And the fourth thing is there in 1 verse 4. The gospel is powered by the son's death and resurrection. Uh, The death and resurrection of the son, that's the, the power, the operator of the gospel. And so uh, there at the beginning of the letter, Paul has told us four things about the gospel. Paul is not ashamed of God's plan. Paul is not ashamed of God's message. Uh, Paul is not ashamed of God's son. And Paul is not ashamed of the son's death and resurrection. He's not ashamed. And that's what the gospel then is. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now look what he does in the middle of verse 16. He gives us a rationale for why he is not ashamed of the gospel. He says, for it is, that is, the gospel is, the power of God for salvation. You see, freedom from shame is a powerful thing indeed. To live a life with a free conscience to have no shame, to have no guilt. What kind of life would that be? Well, that's the kind of life that's going to take a lot of power. Someone is going to have to deliver me. Will it be myself? That's what the world says to us. Or will it be another power? Will it be an outside person, an outside force? Uh, Will I be delivered from shame by a government or a political party or a bank account or an employer or a uh, relationship with someone uh, here uh, in my family or here this morning? How will I be delivered from shame? And Paul says it is that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Paul believes that his shame is released not by merely the power of God, but by the power of God in the gospel. I want you to think about this. You see, there are some who would argue that we are uh, released from shame merely by the power of God as a force undefined. 
My relationship with God is uh, deep and personal within me. I define it, you don't define it, and my relationship with God is that which frees me from all guilt and shame. It's that relationship, private and unto myself, defined only by myself. Well, that's my confidence. No, liberal Protestantism would make that very argument would say that I believe that uh, there is a God and that God is a force and that God gives us all things that we need. And we would ask, who is this God and how this God works? And suddenly the answers become very thin and vacuous. And what Paul is saying here is he's saying that uh, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. He's, he's, he's saying that uh, he is saved and delivered from shame, not merely by the power of God, but by the power of God in the gospel, which means that God works upon Paul in a mediated fashion. We could ask Paul, how does God work on you? And Paul says, well, it's the gospel. It's God's plan. It's God's message. It's God's son and it's the son's death and resurrection. Paul believes that he is ministered to by God in a mediated way. That God doesn't lift him up by a secret force that can't be communicated. Paul can communicate the gospel. That God's message has been communicated in the history of the world. Paul believes that God ministers to him in a gospel that can be critiqued and preached and understood and also misunderstood. But it is an objective reality nonetheless. You see, Paul says that it is the uh, gospel that's the power of God for salvation because he's aware of a couple of things. Uh, let me just say two of them. Paul, Paul understands how his world sees the gospel. Paul is a skilled preacher who has preached for many years at this point, and he understands how the world views the gospel. Uh, when Paul goes into a city and he says that the gospel is God's plan and God's message about God's son uh, and the son's uh, death and resurrection, Paul knows that the bulk of his audience believes that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Paul has numerous times preached a message that has fallen upon deaf ears, accusing ears, antagonistic ears, persecuting ears. But Paul is aware of this. He's aware that the gospel, well, it's viewed by the world as silliness and folly and useless. He's aware of that, but he's also aware of this. Paul's aware how his world not only sees the gospel, but how his world sees a replacement gospel, a different gospel, a contrary gospel. My brothers and sisters, I'd like for you to hear me assert before you this morning that everyone in the world has some hope, has some expectation of power, has some kind of great salvation in the world. Every man, woman, and child has some means of understanding their greatest hope in the world. And Paul knows that about the world. Do you realize that in classical culture, the culture which Paul is addressing, salvation was mysterious. We think of salvation as a Christian word, a church word. It's not a church word. Every religion of the first century world 
the people that Paul is addressing, every religion has some sense of salvation, a a great unspeakable deliverance from all powers, all harm, all sadness. Every religion, Paul knows, has some picture of that. Classicists tell us that Uh, of all of the religions in the classical world, there would always be this kind of great expectation about the afterlife that would uh, trump all of the work of the gods. There's a sense in which the gods can provide fruit for my field, the gods can provide a spouse and children, that gods can uh, provide uh, monetary and political advantages, but can the gods provide salvation? Yes, But classicists tell us that it's usually mysterious. The gods can provide it, but oftentimes individuals have to answer that question on their own. What is my ultimate salvation? And in the classical world, it's a God doing something mysterious. Think about your own world. What does our culture say that salvation is? Even if it's a funny word, Maybe our our neighbor who doesn't believe in Jesus wouldn't uh, quite get the word salvation and, and we'd have to translate that. But that neighbor would have an answer to the question what their salvation is. I just try and live a good life and be a good person. I don't have to be a millionaire. I just want to have enough money to provide for my kids so that my kids can go to school. I really want to have a happy life. That's really what I'm after in this world. You see, Paul understood these two things. He understood that the world hated his gospel, found it to be folly, and he understood that the world didn't remain neutral and unaffiliated, but that the world had some answer for the means by which they would receive salvation. Paul knew that about his world, and he's speaking to that world in explicit terms in verse 16 when he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel for the gospel is God's power for salvation. This is salvation. Laugh at it all you want. But Paul knew his audience wanted some kind of great salvation. And Paul says, this is it. This is how someone has that. And you desire it too, even though you laugh in my face because I hold up to you the gospel. He says, going on in verse 17, for I am not ashamed, for it is the power of God for salvation. And he says in verse 17, for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. You know, Paul from verse one or chapter one, verse two, Paul has already told us that the gospel is something that is revealed, that God speaks. In fact, in Romans one, two, that, uh, that word uh, for uh, revealed is actually a word that's used for uh, speaking, the spoken word. And so Paul believes that the gospel is not something that's, uh, that's uh, pent up in a cage, that's uh, darkened and invisible. The gospel is something that's actually revealed. There's something in the gospel that is made known. And then he offers these words. He says, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is that which is revealed. 
You know, literally, he means righteousness that comes from God. But I'll confess that here in verse 17 is uh, one of the most written about doctrines in all of Christendom. In fact, one commentator says uh, that right here, it's impossible to give an account of this debate in the history of the church. Verse 17 is critical for understanding the gospel. What does the phrase righteousness of God mean? And I want to offer a little bit of evidence to suggest to you this morning that the righteousness of God refers to the righteousness that comes from God. It's God's own righteousness. And there's evidence in Romans. Uh, you can look at verse, uh, or chapter 10, verse 3. And Paul says there that we're the kind of people that tend to establish our own righteousness. That sounds like me. I, I think it sounds like you. We're the kind of people that, that tend to establish our own righteousness. Uh, somehow, I want to do something uh, worthy, that, uh, that God will uh, do something good to me because of the good that I have done. I, I want to uh, establish my own sense of righteousness. I want to, as it were, uh, build a resume and be able to hold that resume up to God and say, see, I'm righteous. Now that's what Paul's talking about in Romans 10, verse 3. We seek to establish our own righteousness. There, he says, we do that by following a law, by obedience, by performing. But Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, uh, he says that uh, we are the kind of people who ought not want to be discovered as having a righteousness that comes from self or from law. Paul says a Christian is the kind of person in Philippians 3.9 who shouldn't be discovered as someone who has a righteousness that comes from themselves. That's not being a Christian. That's being something else. And so what Paul means here in verse 17 is he means that uh, the righteousness that is revealed in the gospel is actually a righteousness that comes from elsewhere. Uh, Martin Luther called it an alien righteousness. You see, Paul says that the gospel is uh, God's power. It's God's power. And it's how we receive God's righteous assessment. It's God doing everything. You know, Paul doesn't want us to think that our salvation is our own obedience. He doesn't want us to think that salvation comes because of what I have done or, the, or because of uh, whatever of the many uh, Greek and Roman gods I call my own. If Paul wants us to understand salvation is God's righteousness having been just given to us. It's God's own righteousness and he just, he just gives it to us. Oftentimes we look at uh, verse 17 and we think that it's just too academic and intellectual for me. But notice what Paul does. Paul actually cites the Old Testament. You know, those stories in the Old Testament are written for our understanding, that we would uh, look to them and that we would learn uh, more about the doctrine that's being taught in the New Testament. And when we uh, look back at Habakkuk's life, uh, uh, true, a, a man uh, whom we know very little about, there are things that resonate in Habakkuk's life that tell us what Paul means when he says that God's righteousness comes to us. It's not our own righteousness. Habakkuk lived in the 7th century BC, and this, this means that he lived after the northern kingdom, the 10 northern tribes. They had already been uh, dominated and destroyed and dispersed uh, by Assyria. And at this time, Habakkuk is ministering at the same time as Jeremiah. 
And Habakkuk is uh, ministering in what is called the southern kingdom, uh, Judea. And and as Habakkuk is uh, preaching, uh, there is a a tumultuous uprising across the border, the uprising of a city of Babylon that's going to become a kingdom. And Habakkuk is a prophet with whom when we read his three chapters, uh, we think he doesn't have a sermon there at all. It's really Habakkuk's devotional life. Read Habakkuk, three chapters. You can do it this afternoon. It's about a man's devotional life, speaking with God, listening to God. And Habakkuk, in in his world, uh, he sees that Judea, it's full of traitors. It's full of those who are perverting justice. It's it's a land that's full of rebels. And Habakkuk knows this. Listen, Listen to what Habakkuk says about them. It's so fitting for our own age. Habakkuk is looking at his world, and he says that these are the kind of people who think that their own might is their God. Their own might is their God. Brothers and sisters, that's our world. That's where we live. Everyone believes that it's their own strength and wisdom and decision-making and job and connections that is their great salvation. And Habakkuk says their own might is their God. I know what he's talking about. And God says to Habakkuk that he's going to judge them. And God says that his judgment for them is the rise of the Babylonians. And listen to what Habakkuk does. Habakkuk goes up into a watchtower. And he stands in this watchtower. And he's waiting for a vision. And the picture is is perceptibly clear. Habakkuk is standing in the watchtower looking for troops and he can see the arise of the Babylonian power. That is God's judgment. And and if Habakkuk would turn 180 degrees, he could look back at at the Judeans on the other side of that watchtower and he sees there a lot of rebels, people who actually deserve God's judgment. What a lovely picture that is. Habakkuk, a minister of the gospel, according to Paul, looks backward and he sees a people that deserve judgment. Their might is their God. And then he looks the other direction and he sees that judgment rising and it will come. God has promised that it will come. And what does Habakkuk hear from God? God says to Habakkuk in 2 verse 4, the very verse that Paul quotes, that we would understand what he is saying. God says to Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith. That's the only salvation in this scenario. Judea deserves judgment. Judgment is coming. How will anyone live? And God tells Habakkuk, the righteous will live through faith. And at the very end of Habakkuk, we have a wonderful appeal of the gospel. There's a sense in which uh, none of us here could preach the gospel as clearly as Habakkuk. Habakkuk says at the very end of chapter 3, he says, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. Babylon's coming. And the people deserve judgment. And Habakkuk deserves judgment. But he says, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. Do you hear that? The sovereign Lord is my strength. Habakkuk is the very opposite of the person who would say that my own might is my God. Habakkuk knows he has no strength. But the sovereign Lord, he is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He stabilizes me in life. 
He enables me to go on to the heights. That's quoting Habakkuk. He enables me to go on to the heights. Habakkuk had a view of salvation that was salvation in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul references Habakkuk for that reason, that we would understand that, yes, indeed, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because that's the power for salvation. I have nothing, Paul says. It is God's plan. It is God's message. It is God's son. And it is God's power released by that son's death and resurrection. That's why Paul is not ashamed. And that's why we should not be ashamed. Please don't think that to not be ashamed is merely to not be embarrassed at the gospel and to go out into the world and to proclaim it loudly with great confidence. Sure, you should do that. But Paul is not saying that uh, we are never going to not be embarrassed as we preach the gospel. We're gonna preach the gospel with timidity and with fear. We're gonna need our brothers and sisters to hold us up. We're gonna need the Holy Spirit to give us appropriate words. And when we go out to proclaim the gospel, it's going to be messy, it's going to be ugly, and it's not going to be very eloquent at all if you're like me. Paul's not saying, I'm okay being embarrassed by the gospel. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I'm not ashamed because God's power is the power that saves. I bring nothing. That's why he's not ashamed. It's God's power for salvation. How? How is this God's power for salvation? Paul says that in the gospel, it's God's own righteousness declared to us. It's God's own righteousness declared to Habakkuk a sinner. It's God's own righteousness declared to you, brother and sister, who profess faith in Jesus Christ. It's God's own righteousness given to you. So there's two admonitions that I want to close with before we pray and celebrate this gospel at the Lord's table. The first admonition is to you who are here this morning who are believers. This is a reminder to us How foolish for us to think for a moment that we can check off boxes and earn God's favor. Or to think that we have something that we can bring to the table. We have absolutely nothing. Don't you see, brother and sister, the gospel is what allows us to call that out and state that for what it is. I'm not ashamed for the gospel because I know my own efforts and they're worthless. They earn nothing but judgment. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because that's how I'm saved. And as Christians, we need to remind one another of that. We need to speak the gospel to each other, to remind one another God's great promise to be with us for all eternity, to never separate from us. When our brothers and sisters are are sinning, we can admonish them because even in your faithlessness, God is not faithless towards you for that would be to deny himself. He's yours and you're his. And this is the reminder that we have the privilege of offering to brothers and sisters, not because we know it so well, but because it's not our power, it's God's power. And that's the first admonition. But there's an admonition for those who are here this morning who are not believers. Maybe you think you're just on the fence, you're uh, computing things for a bit pondering. Uh, Maybe this was the faith of mom and dad and you're not sure if you're ready to make it your own faith yet. Or maybe it was the faith of your heritage and your background. 
This is the only message that you will ever hear that says that you have everything by grace. This is the only message that will promise to you eternal salvation if you would but set down all of your efforts. Every religion in the history of the world says do this and you will get this. Do something and you will get something. And Paul reminds us of Habakkuk who has nothing And history tells us that Jerusalem was judged and defeated. Jerusalem was turned to rubble. But Habakkuk was saved for all eternity. This gospel of God is the power of salvation in that it is the only message that says to you, it's time to stop. And in stopping, you will be rescued. So if you're here this morning and that is new to you, uh, would you consider reaching out to someone who is here and asking them about this gospel kind of life? Let's pray together. Our Father, we ask that you would help us to to be the kind of people that hold out a banner that says upon it, The gospel is yours. It is your message about your son and empowered by his death and resurrection. Father, would that be the only words on that banner? And would you forgive us for holding up a different banner? Might your gospel reign supreme in our lives as Christians. In Jesus' name, amen.